Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Megan spent 10 years in Chicago's off-loop DIY theater scene as an actor, playwright, and costume designer and choreographer. Her work was reviewed well and critiqued as thoroughly captivating and heartbreakingly sincere. Today, Megan performs as a dancer and student of circus and aerial arts. She's a fierce advocate for survivors of domestic and sexual abuse, particularly those in the LGBTQ community and in the performing arts. She wanted to tell her story on the podcast in order for it to help others know what to watch out for and because she's seen how creative fields and specifically the performing arts are structured in a way at times that can make people particularly vulnerable to tolerating controlling and, unfortunately, abusive behavior. Here's Megan now. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm so happy, actually, to be able to speak with Megan today and to be able to have you kind of introduce me to something that occurred, but also be able to really kind of validate this idea that control and abuse of power can happen, again, in so many different situations, that people kind of envision um, certain kind of cultic groups or certain kinds of relationships, and that that's where it happens, but that it can happen anywhere. Sometimes when people ask me sort of the definition of an unhealthy relationship or a cult, um, I will sometimes say that it doesn't have to do with the philosophy or the theology or uh, even the history of that relationship, but the nature of the relationship between somebody in charge or somebody there who takes a position of being in charge and the other people who are kind of mm, turns out to be at their mercy and so uh, or under their influence. So if you can start by introducing yourself and then we'll start telling your story together. Okay, um, my name's Megan. Um, I was an actress for a little over 10 years. Um, I was a member of a theater company. It was a non-equity theater company, which means it was non-union, so it didn't have any of the protections of the union. And um, I ended up being abused at the theater company, as did about a dozen other people that I know of, almost entirely women. Mm. And I thought it was really interesting to talk about because it's at this weird intersection of personal and professional. Because in the performing arts, there's this concept of people having to pay their dues. And there's a lot of room given in the in the creative arts generally for people who are for bad behavior, to be honest, there's a lot of bad behavior that's excused as like, oh, well, they're an auteur, they're a genius, they're, you know, that's just how they are, that's just how they work. And a lot of times people feel that their career is at the mercy of these people, and so they feel that they have to put up with a lot of really awful things so that they can have a career that, you know, if they don't put up with these, with this behavior, then this person will sabotage them. Or conversely, you know, I know I've heard a lot of bad things about this person, but they could do a lot for my career. And I just, I just feel like that's a, that's a, that's false. I think that's a false premise. I don't feel that anybody should have to put up with abusive behavior 
for the sake of their career. Yeah. So to jump in for a moment, I wanted to say two things about that. And then I want to hear more about how you're defining the abuse, just so people have a sense of what you're referring to, if that feels comfortable. I was speaking to some people who are in the world of comedy and one of them female, one of them male. Um, and the male, it seems, was just as horrified by how the women were treated as the woman was horrified by how she and her fellow female comedians were treated, but also people who were kind of coming up in, in the field and that same idea that you have to endure something. And I think you also have to show that you're unaffected by it. And it has to be kind of cool with you and you're not supposed to have a reaction. And if you do, it can be used against you and your career. So there's that one piece where it shows up in the arts in a lot of different places. And I think also probably in big business and a lot of other environments. But I think there's such a problem with it on so many levels also because of the entitlement it gives the abusers, the ones who know that built into the system is this permission to be able to abuse their power and that the other people who they abuse are supposed to somehow be okay with it and not complain because it'll be used against the victim and not the perpetrator. So it's a very dangerous kind of situation to walk into, especially if you don't know that's what you're walking into. Yes, exactly. And it's also really gendered because the last thing a, a, a woman performer wants to be labeled as is difficult. Ah, difficult. So what does that mean when you're called difficult? How is that defined? Well, um, I know this is true for for acting um, generally, and this is probably true in a lot of a lot of other industries. But the uh, it skews heavily female, um, and most most of the time, parts there are, are more parts for men. So you're going to have fifty, a hundred women trying out for one role. If you cause the slightest bit of trouble, if you complain the slightest bit, you're worried that, you know, you're replaceable. And then you don't want to worry about getting a reputation as difficult because then word will spread like, oh, don't hire her. She's difficult. You've got a hundred other women to choose from. Uh-huh. Okay. And of course, the, there's so much irony here, but being difficult means that you say what is true, that you are not treated in the quote unquote right way or fairly or uh, in a safe way. And in the world outside, typically, you get to say something about that and you have some rights around that and you'll get support. But you're saying no, not in this environment. Typically, no. I mean, there, of course, are supposed to be safeguards in place, particularly if you're with the union, um, so that there are pathways to make complaints um, that isn't always the case. That doesn't always work that way in practice. Um, but again, I was with a non-equity theater company. And so it was, and my city has kind of a very fun and well-known sort of DIY sort of guerrilla theater scene where we're used to setting up in storefronts and doing really kind of out there stuff. There's a lot that's allowed. And but unfortunately, the flip side of having all that creative freedom is that sometimes standards and practices aren't, uh, you know, aren't in the cards. And that leaves people open and vulnerable. Right. Okay. 
Exactly right. So then the the freedom leaves you with fewer safeguards. So it's a toss up. Sort of um, on the one hand, that's what some people are going to gravitate towards because they'll have the creative freedom. But then it shouldn't really be that then that comes along with you being at people's mercy. But I suppose that can happen. Right. Okay. Okay. So I'm wondering also just to kind of zoom out for a moment with uh, your story, but also seeing how pervasive this is, because this is something that I, I don't know about and I don't have the numbers. Do you have a sense of how pervasive this is? Just anecdotally, certainly if you're talking about theater and film, I mean, obviously we all know about Me Too, which is the hashtag that Alyssa Milano uh, popularized, originally created by Toronto Burke in the wake of Harvey Weinstein. And so that really opened up the floodgates for a lot of these stories to come out. And there are a lot of people, especially in regional theater, but even a playwright in New York who have finally, after decades, kind of had their behavior come to light in a public forum. But I don't know, I don't have any sort of statistics on whether, you know, that's representative or not. Okay. So, I mean, because it, it, again, like with anything with, you know, abuse or violence, it's very hard to know because so much isn't reported. I do know that in my city, there have been two major, um, I hate to use the word scandals, but two major like exposés of theaters where um, the man running them used it as his own personal harem. And, um, and that's just in my city. <laughs> so it seems to me with my anecdotal evidence that it is absolutely a problem. So there are also these other stories that I remember hearing about, about, you know, a theater group that was here uh, in LA that was uh, basically a way to siphon people into Scientology. And so sometimes you have that, that it's kind of a either a front group or the person running it is someone who's a member of something else and thinks that that's what's going to be best for you too. Or the person running the program is not necessarily sexually abusive, uh, but emotionally abusive. Absolutely. I feel like that's extremely common. Ah, okay. Right. Sort of being pushed beyond your comfort zone and, and then not being able to really have this gauge about if this really is somehow helping you in your work and in your art and in, you know, dealing with your emotional self and self-expression, et cetera, and your reactions, or if it's just this person in charge kind of enjoying the power of it. Um, and I'm sure. So you're saying that that's something that you've heard quite a bit. I do. I really do feel that way. There's um, there's a, a theater kind of online magazine called HowlRound, and they published this really brilliant scholarly article about a month ago um, about this woman who was talking about um, the method, and uh, which is an extremely popular um, in the United States of an extremely popular way to think about acting or approach to acting. And there are very various different versions of that, but it's it's really well known, like Lee Strasberg, Meisner, um, you know, these are all, you know, they taught, you know, Strasberg taught Marilyn Monroe, for example. Um, Jared Leto, when he was um, preparing for his role as the Joker, um, decided to make it super real and like send used condoms and like really gross things to his, uh, his co-stars. It was super gross. But the idea is that it's kind of this weird 
misunderstood version of the Stanislavski system. And it really focuses on truth and being real and um, having like the actor having a true emotional reaction. And in practice, what this means, um, and this wonderful author, I believe her name is Holly Dare, um, goes through all of this work that has been done about how that leaves people, in particular, in particular women, just wide open to emotional manipulation. Because if you are supposed to be emotionally open and emotionally vulnerable in order to be real, in order to act, in order to, to do the work, then you're just you're just a, an open target for anybody who wants to abuse that or misuse that. Right. Right. Wow. Okay. And so I just want to say that even though we're talking about uh, this happening to women, I know you know it also happens to men. Absolutely. So I just want to make sure that we that we mention that too, and that we're not just uh, seeing one side of it. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I apologize because my, my experience has been mostly with other women, mm -hmm. but there was a man who, who does identify as a victim of my theater company. Uh, the, the abuse just took a very different form with him because in my case, this is, it was just very gendered. So we can get into that. Right. Yeah. I would like to be able to do that. So what would be good, I think, is to kind of take us, take us back, if you will, um, to before this happened, just a little bit about you growing up, just so we get to know you a little bit. Okay. Well, um, I wanted to be an actor since I was little, but when I went to college, my mother said over my dead body, am I paying for you to go to college and major in theater? So I didn't major in theater, I majored in something else. And then short, like a year after I was out of school, I realized, I was like, what am I doing? This isn't what I want to do. And I moved back to the city where I went to college and I started trying to pursue acting. And, you know, I was most familiar with theater. So that's where I wanted to start. I wanted to build up my resume by doing theater. And if I wanted to move into film, I figured that was a decision I could make later. Problem is, is because I didn't go to theater school, I, not only did I not have the training, but you make a lot of connections in theater school. You make a lot of connections with your, through your acting coach. And, um, you know, I just didn't have that. And so I, from the very start, I felt like I was beginning behind everybody else because I didn't have the training and I didn't have the networking. So I got, I mean, I got a couple of credits um, and then I found this theater company. And they were they, this really cool, avant-garde, high art sort of theater company. They did this really interesting um, combination between highbrow and lowbrow. And the people who ran it, this, this um, at the time they were boyfriend and girlfriend, and they ended up getting married. The man, the uh, his name was Jeremy, who ran the company. He had studied in Russia at the Moscow Art Theater. And that was just so impressive. He was very highly educated. He had a very unique perspective. And everybody really pitched in. So everybody really had ownership of the work. And I thought it was really interesting. And when a lot of other DIY stuff um, at the time was all like, you know, the drinking play, it was very interesting to see, oh, wow, this is a, 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 an interesting reimagining of a Greek myth. So that was cool. 
I didn't get cast in the first production, but, you know, I didn't get cast in a whole lot of things. I didn't think much of it. And then about seven months later, they gave me a call back and said, we're doing a different show. We want you to audition, which, again, is also not unusual. I thought, oh, great. I've made an impression. That's great. And I ended up getting cast. Um, And it was weird because when I showed up on the first day, Jeremy had said, oh, I'm so glad that you came back. I thought we lost you. And I thought, well, that's weird, but I don't know, theater people are weird. So I didn't think anything of it. So I ended up doing a lot of shows with them for over the next couple of years. I became an official company member and I had no problems. And in fact, even when Jeremy, who was the artistic director of the company, when he married his girlfriend, Anna, who was the managing director. So they are first in command and second in command. I was in their wedding, you know, wow. I, I worked with them with no problems. Again, they were theater, they were theater people and they were weird and occasionally people argued, but I didn't have any issues. Nothing stuck out to me as a real red flag. However, when they got married, I was eight months pregnant. Okay. And so it was, I had told them, I was like, look, I about to have a child. And so I'm going to take some time off from the theater company, but after a while, I'll come back. And they said, okay, well, it's a bummer that we'll lose you, but we understand. So I had the baby. Um, it was a really traumatic birth. I almost died. Oh, um, oh wow. Yeah. Um, I was in the hospital for two weeks, or almost two weeks, um, because the I had sepsis, and it was oh, no. bad. Oh, no. Um, and the other thing is that the my baby's father um was abusive and jeremy and anna knew this because again i'd worked with them for years and i considered them friends and i trusted them um i don't want to get too much into it but he was um i didn't recognize it as such at the time but he was sexually abusive in the sense that he did not respect my no so he would constantly, every single day, he would nag me for sex. And I would be like, I'm st- I still have stitches. And um, then I was expected to, to perform in other ways. And, uh, you know, there were times when I would just, I would just be so fed up. I'd say, okay, fine. I don't want to, but it's the only thing that will shut you up. And then I would just lay there and sometimes I would cry and it didn't matter to him. And then I was also at home. I wasn't working. I hadn't been making enough money to make it worth paying the exorbitant prices for daycare for an infant. So I was at home with my son, but that left me really isolated. I didn't have anybody to talk to and none of my friends had kids yet. And so there wasn't a lot of, I felt very isolated. Yeah. Yeah. So when my son was about a year and a half old, Jeremy and Anna contacted me. They said, Hey, you know that play that you wanted to be in, but you couldn't be in? We want to remount it and we want to give you the lead role. And you can set your own rehearsal schedule and you can set your own performance schedule. And uh, you can have anything you want if you'll come back. Okay. Wow. Said, That's oh, quite okay. That sounds great. Right? Absolutely. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I said, okay, well, you know, I have to make, you know, I have kids so I have to make sure I talk this over with my then husband and make you know but we all worked it out he's because they they even talked to him and they said whatever you guys need is fine we just really want Megan to come back okay so we worked it all out and it was great and I got to do the part that I've been wanting to do for years so 
when we scheduled the first rehearsal, it was just going to be me and Jeremy because Jeremy was not only the artistic director of the company, but he was all, he also wrote all the plays. He starred in all the plays. He directed all the plays. Okay. So he was going to be acting opposite me. Um, and now typically in theater, there's supposed to be a, a procedure. There's a, there's a standard for rehearsals. You know, you have a stage manager who takes down notes. Um, there's the director and there's the cast and there's, there's, there's supposed to be a standard, but this being this like gritty little do-it-yourself theater company, we didn't have any of that. We mm -hmm. never had a stage manager until, you know, almost um, it was time to perform. So the first rehearsal, he said, okay, come over, but the rehearsal's not going to be in the theater. It's going to be in the apartment, which, because they lived above the theater. And Anna wasn't home. So it was just the two of us. And so we start kind of talking about the characters and talking about what motivates them. And um, we start kind of start to, to feel things out. And then at some point he kisses me and I'm not quite sure what's going on. I think it's a part of the scene. So I go with it. And then when the kiss ends, he says, I've been wanting to do that for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's not in the script. Are we improvising? Right. I was going to say <laughs> that, that phrase, like that doesn't fit what the play is about. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. um, and so I'm trying to roll with this while I'm trying to figure out what's, what's happening because yeah. I don't want to seem unprepared and I don't want to, to mess up this chance to have this part that I really want. And then eventually he starts talking about like, oh, you know, should I tell Anna? Um, and, you know, cause she's open to this, you know, we've had, you know, we've had relation, we've had a girlfriend before. And I, then I, once I finally catch up to what on earth he's talking about, I'm like, whoa, whoa. Okay. I didn't realize it had turned into this. And so I had to do some very quick thinking. Cause I did again, like this was my friend, I thought, and also my boss. Right. Cause he was the director and the artistic director of the company. So he was the uh, the person in charge of the play and also the entire theater company. And I don't remember every word that he said, but I do remember going home and having a long think about it because Jeremy and Anna both knew about my husband being abusive because they were my friends. Yeah. And I had talked to them while I was away even from the company as talking about how frustrated I was with his behavior and how I, you know, didn't want to be touched anymore. And I thought, you know, when Jeremy kissed me, I didn't hate it. I didn't feel repulsed like I did with my husband because he would just be pawing at me all the time. Like I couldn't even sleep in my own bed because he would roll over in the middle of the night and jam his hands down my pajama pants. And I, I, I literally could not get away from his touch. But when Jeremy touched me, I didn't hate it. And so I thought, well, if this is my only chance to be touched and not hate it, then I'm going to go with it because I'm really, really tired of feeling of hating human interaction mm -hmm. and it wasn't a great choice but it was the choice that I made and you know uh, the more I learned about Jeremy and Anna the more I 
believe that that was a very deliberate choice on Jeremy's part. He knew about me. He knew about my history. And he, you know, when they called me up because they needed to do a play and they needed to do it right now, they chose me because Jeremy knew that I was vulnerable. Okay. So I'm just relaying back sort of all the, all the reactions I'm having to what you're saying, how you were wanting to be able to have, first of all, this part, and you were wanting to be able to uh, have it done in a way that you were, well, the way it was presented, that it was going to work well in your life. It was going to give you this opportunity. You were going to be able to work the hours around childcare, et cetera. And, and in that way, you're also going to feel uh, grateful to this man. And it is setting up, there's sort of a, a, a condition of influence that um, we call reciprocity. And so, right, if you feel like you've received this gift, especially the way it was presented, that you want to then give back. And sometimes people give back by maybe tolerating something that they wouldn't otherwise or lowering their defenses. Um, But I think also knowing that you didn't hate it, meaning you hadn't built up this very knee-jerk response like you had with your husband, um, where you were going to have this kind of fear and repulsion and a lot of things that were going to be right there under the surface that he could trigger just by touching you. That if it doesn't happen with another man, you're going to assume that has some significance that maybe it doesn't have um, just by virtue of it being different. And, And then, yes, in retrospect, knowing that he knew the situation that you had been in, I'm sure now looking back at it makes you look at him in a very different way and in more of a predatory way. So, okay, those are all the reactions I'm having. while you were talking. I just wanted to make sure to say them. Okay, keep going. So, No, absolutely. Well, I found out much later that the whole reason that they approached me and, and said, you can have anything you want if you'll come back and do a show right now is because um, the show that had been on the schedule, they were actually in the middle of rehearsals for it, it all fell apart. Um, depending on who you're talking to, it's because literally every actor in the show quit or because Jeremy canceled it because he wasn't getting what he wanted. And what he wanted was complete control over those actors and a sexual relationship with one of them. Mm. Um, so again, it depends on who you ask. Mm-hmm. But um, when I talked to the to the woman who he had been pursuing at that time, and her story isn't mine to tell, but it is horrific. She, when she said, absolutely not, if you're going to keep doing this, I, she says, like, I can't eat. I keep throwing up every time I'm here. Um, he, he kept threatening suicide if she would not sleep with him. And she said, I can't do this anymore. You've got to stop or I can't or I can't do this anymore. And um, according to her, in a fit of petulance, he just said, okay, fine, well, then I'm canceling the show to try to, to, try to get her to stay, and it didn't work because she said, I can't do this anymore. Right. Um, in right. Jeremy's telling, everybody abandoned him and everybody bailed on him and left him with no show, and you know, there was this big hole in the season. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, well, I could always count on Megan. 
Ah, wow. Okay, you know, yeah. Megan would always show up. Megan would always stay late at rehearsals when I needed her to. Megan would always show up and paint the sets and Megan would always help make costumes and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Megan will come through for me when everybody else has let me down. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. And so that, that is so, uh, I mean, I don't know this guy at all, but it is very typical of that personality style. Uh, first of all, to feel like everyone is abandoning you, even though you're pushing them away. Um, but that you don't either want to take responsibility for that, or you actually don't realize it because you're so not self-aware, uh, and you're more focused on what you should be receiving rather than what you are doing to other people. That's making them not give you what you want. But the other part is about putting that pressure on you that you somehow have to be that person who doesn't kind of abandon the cause and the cause I guess would be him. And so that does sometimes create a lot of behavior modification with people who have a conscience, people who feel easily guilty, people who feel they need to pay back, that that will sometimes get them to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. It is quite a manipulation. I'm sorry that was put on your shoulders. Yeah. And he, and he knew exactly how to manipulate me because again, like he had, he already knew about the situation with my husband. So he knew, like you said, you know, if, if he touched me and I wasn't automatically repulsed, then he felt like, okay, well, this is my way in with her. And also the past few years when we had been working on shows, you know, the, the writing that he had done frequently featured, you know, women or girls who were totally misunderstood, frequently abused. And um, in order to really understand our characters, we would we would talk about our own past traumas and how we felt a kinship with our characters. And so we were laying bare our you know emotional buttons. And so he had all of this knowledge at at his disposal for when he wanted to push those buttons. Right. And so then in the getting all this information, the, the private information, the emotional information, probably it was encouraged because it was going to be what for your benefit? It was going to be for your acting. It was it was it was all it was all part of the way that we were doing our acting. You know, we wanted to be very emotional and very true and very real and very present and very raw. And in order to do that. Um, we needed to kind of come to like a shared understanding. We had to create the work um, ourselves as a group. And so that's why we would share all of these personal things that made us, you know, that made us relate to, to the character. And so there would be, there would be a lot of um, opening up about past traumas and things like that. And well, I think that the character would react like this because when I was in that situation, uh, similarly emotionally loaded situation. This is how I felt. And so he had this kind of encyclopedia of his actor's neuroses mm-hmm. that then he could just pull out whenever he right. needed to. Their, their neuroses, their sensitivities, their traumas, all of it. Okay. Exactly. So this isn't necessarily a dangerous thing by and large, but it is if the intention is to have it used as a means of control uh, or to be taken advantage of. Exactly. Because again, for the first few years when I was with them, he had all this information and I never felt that it was weaponized against me. Okay. And so that's one of the reasons why I felt totally unprepared when I came back. 
I don't, I don't know what, well, I have some guesses about what happened, but it was a completely different situation that I was completely unprepared for when I came back. Um, and so one of the ways that I became very emotionally dependent on him so quickly is that I was trusting him, of course, with my situation with my then husband, but also the character in the play that he had asked me to come back and participate in and star in. That character had um, some medical issues that would eventually lead to her death. And well, I had just had a traumatic birth that I nearly died from. So again, there were all of these, there were all of these levers that he, in my brain that he had acted access to. If, if the um, abusive relationship lever didn't work, then he would pull on the nearly dying and childbirth lever. You know, he had, he just, my, my mind was just this open playground for him. Right. And, you know, and he would always tell me that, you know, I know that, you know, things are hard and you have a child and so you can't just up and leave, but, you know, I'm here for you and Anna is here for you. And, you know, we're going to save you from your situation and we're going to be a family, all of us. Mm -hmm. Wow. So he felt, he filled like my emotional needs. He filled my, my like artistic needs. Um, and then, and of course, you know, he would always check in with me. You know, he was, he would text me a hundred times a day. And he, he was, what I understand now is like love bombing. And I just, and I just felt so overwhelmed and, and with, love and attend and positive attention from him but it also was clear that something was wrong so I wanted to approach this relationship and make it a little better than I what I had with my husband and so let's say in rehearsal that Jeremy said something that upset me and I would say you know Jeremy after rehearsal after everybody had gone home so it was so I wasn't like putting our business on display I would say you know Jeremy I know you didn't mean to hurt my feelings, but that thing that you said really bothered me. And, um, you know, could you maybe not say that again in the future, which I felt was a, an adult and compassionate and respectful way to address conflict. But then it would turn into like a two hour screaming fight where I would just be like, I'm sorry, I don't, I didn't mean to upset you. I was just trying to say, and then uh, after two, two and a half hours, I'd be on the floor sobbing and saying, I'm so sorry, I will never do this to you again. Okay, right. And so to go back to one thing that you said before, and then I want to come back to this story, absolutely. But going back to this idea that he was texting you all the time and he talked about being family, I mean, you know, when you were talking about giving birth and almost dying and, and uh, the trauma that goes along with that uh, and the isolation also with not having a partner that you felt that you could kind of get support from at that time, I have a feeling. And also if your friends were also not parents at the time, they weren't going to have that understanding of that feeling. I mean, everyone's trauma is sort of um, individually understood by them in a way that it's not understood by anyone else, but still people who have a similar kind of experience, they can approximate, you know, that, that kind of understanding, come close to it. But it seems like that wasn't available in your world at the time. And so just having to go through the fire on your own uh, sounds like a very, very hard time. And it's also going to then make you more open to someone offering you that connection and the protection, or at least the feeling of it. Going back to then you saying what you said to him in yeah, a very mature, level-headed way, 
giving him an opportunity to kind of do it differently with you if he really did care, you know, and you're letting him know that he did something that bothers you in a healthy relationship that's invited. And you get a thank you for letting me know. And you also get a, then a change in behavior because it's, it's more than just saying thank you for letting me know. You actually have to see a change in behavior. But instead, you got a firestorm. And so do you remember while he's yelling for these hours what he was saying or were you just shut down and overwhelmed? Can you let us know about that? Well, it was, it was just so common that I can't really remember like the first time that this happened or what was said because it was, I learned quickly that if I tried to defend myself with like, I'm not accusing you of anything. I know that you didn't mean to hurt my feelings or I know that you didn't mean to embarrass me. Um, but you know, this is how I felt. And I just want to let you know, it would always be, he would always accuse me of attacking him or like, I don't, I don't, I can't believe that you would say that to me. I can't believe that you would say that about me. He would turn it around so that it was as if I were attacking him. And while Anna was absolutely a victim of his abuse too, she would also, I mean, in the hierarchy, she was still second and then I was still at the bottom. So when she couldn't take his abuse anymore, she would take it out on me. And so there would be times when she would, I remember very clearly one time where she spit at me. She said, you're abusive. You're the one who's abusive. And of course that just cut me to my core because I thought, you know, I've been a victim of abuse from my husband and and I wouldn't, but at the time that she said this, I, my, my husband had already been arrested for domestic violence and whatnot. Um, And I thought, I thought, oh my God, am I, am I as bad as him? Mm-hmm. Am I really, or am I, am I, she's just saying that to make me upset, right? Or am I abusive? I just didn't even know anymore. I just didn't even know. And yeah. I knew that she said it to hurt me. And I knew that she said it because it was the worst thing that she could think of to say to me. But I, was, I still wondered if it was true. I just, I just didn't know what was real anymore. Mm, so I wonder also if she said it, yes, I think you're right. Somehow it was letting off steam from the the abuse that she was incurring, but maybe it was going to make him happy with her and not be as abusive towards her if she kind of mm, joined with him and being abusive towards you. That's where it gets extremely confusing. And especially if you're going to be reflecting inward and wondering what this means about you. Right. Right. Okay. So then. So after that, just, I would just, if anything bothered me, I just learned to just never say anything. I could never say anything. I I couldn't say anything other than praise for Jeremy. And yeah, all, everything had to be, you're a genius. You are, you know, incredible. And anything other than that would incur just screaming at me. So after that first play, when I came back, which went really, really well, and that was mostly like a love bombing, after that thing started to get bad, um, because he had wanted this relationship with me, but then he still had to convince Anna. Of course, you know, Anna didn't get a say in it, but um, he was trying to to work on her until she felt like she had agreed to it. Um, and so then it became a, 
well, you know, in the next play, the two main actresses are in a relationship with each other, or the two, I'm sorry, the two characters are in a relationship with each other. So for realism, the two actresses also have to be in a relationship with each other. And I assumed that was going to be me because of what Jeremy had told me. But then I was told, no, 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 there's this other, there's this other actress who Jeremy really, really likes and he really, really wants to work with. And so it became a competition between the two of us to be both the girlfriend and the star. Mm, wow. Okay. One came with the other. There was, there was no separation of it. And so there was a huge competition that was very deliberately set up between me and this other actress. Um, he would keep us apart from each other. And, you know, he would tell, uh, he'll, he would tell each one of us individually, like, look, I'm on your side, but I'm the director. So I can't play favorites. You know, you just don't let that bitch win on stage. And wow. then, yeah. And then, you know, there would be, he would cancel rehearsal and then call everybody to cancel except me or except the other actress or except both of us. And so we would show up thinking that we were going to be rehearsing and then it would be like, oh no, just come upstairs and hang out. And then I would walk in and see the other actress. And, you know, there'd be these carefully staged scenes. And then, of course, Jeremy would, would scream at me he, he, for, he'd be like, you're acting crazy. You're acting jealous. I don't know why you're acting this way to this other woman. There's nothing going on. Of course, there was something going on. The actress and I, after everything was over, we debriefed. And he was absolutely playing us against each other. And very deliberately so. Um, during that show, I was a punching bag. Like he would just scream abuse at me in rehearsals. Um, anytime he was in a bad mood, um, I would get screamed at. And here's the other thing is that when you're talking about acting in a sense of like, you really want to put something real on stage, even though that the story is not real and you're not really that character, you want the emotion to be real because you want people to believe you and they want, you want the audience to empathize. So kind of like all of my emotions were right there on the surface and I had to do that in order to act. Um, and also because I was just an actor and he was a director he was in charge and he said, this is good and this is not. Do this, but don't do that. He was the final arbiter of what work was good and what was not, what was real and what was not. That's real. That's not real. And so I didn't have any sort of objective metric for whether I was doing well or not. All I knew was whether Jeremy was mad at me or whether Jeremy wasn't. And this is one of the, the issues with, um, with method and method adjacent sort of acting is that it really sets up sort of almost a guru figure who is the only person who can, who, who decides what has value. There's no independent metric to measure yourself against. Only Jeremy decides what is real and what is not. And what he decides is real or true or good can change by the minute, depending on his mood and how he feels. So there's no way for me to work except to try desperately to make Jeremy happy. And also then maybe he won't scream abuse at me in the, in the dressing room. One more thing before you go. My conversation with Megan is one that underscores the idea once more that undue influence can occur anywhere. And within theater and the arts, she was given the message, 
overtly and covertly that many people are given in almost every kind of business that you have to put up with bad behavior or sometimes even abusive behavior in order to have a career or to further your career. Megan contacted me in the hope of sharing her story because, as you can tell, there's so much about her story that fits right into the themes of being manipulated and controlled, indoctrinated. In the second part of our interview next week, she will continue on with her story and we'll get into more of her experiences and also what the catalyst was for her leaving the situation finally. Many people are judged for not leaving a bad situation sooner, so I hope in part two of my conversation with her next week, you will come to understand why judgment really has no place in the decision to stay because very often you're pushed to a place where you're no longer really deciding to stay, but just too afraid or too lost or too stuck to leave by that point. Today, I want to talk a little bit more about the idea Megan shares about how people you trust at the time can end up weaponizing your sensitive information against you. Revealing information and how controllers get people to share the parts of themselves that are sometimes the most easily manipulated and how people get information out of other people in general how you're suddenly sharing way more than you ever thought you would, but suddenly feel compelled to do so or only realize afterwards that you did it. Over the years, I've heard many reasons that people were told to encourage them to share private information. Here are just a few of the manipulative tactics used that the victims of this underhanded kind of interaction said worked all too well to get them to open up and reveal more than they had ever wanted to or planned to. And this was in Bible-based kind of cultic groups or self-help groups or in relationships in a lot of different situations. I would love for you to watch out for any of these being used on you in your own life. And if you hear any of them used on you that I'm about to say, you have my full permission to run for the hills. And interestingly, some of these are predictable, but Other ones are actually truly creative. The first one is, if you continue to play the victim to your information by not opening up and feeling brave enough to get it out, then you will always be the victim in your life. Is that really the life you want? You've spent a lot of money to sign up for this workshop, but you haven't fully opened up. Why are you fine with wasting your money like this? You need to share this information with me so that I can guide you so I can tell you if you are a sinner in need of redemption or not. And you need to know that for your own safety, not for me. You need to share this information with me so I can accurately diagnose you. And that is the only way I will truly be able to help you because then I will know what your problems are and then I can fix them. So by sharing this with me, you are helping yourself by helping me to help you. Don't you think it's selfish of you to hold back when everyone else here has already shared what makes you feel you're more special than they are? Maybe next time we meet you, you will feel ready and brave enough and strong enough, and then I will be proud of you because you have proven that then you are ready to open up. The people who move up more quickly in this organization are the ones who open up more fully with their whole heart. But if you're happy being where you are and not raising yourself up, then you don't have to share anything. But just remember that when you see other people moving up because that will be on you because you withheld information. I will share something private about myself and then you will share something private about yourself. And 
if I share something private about myself, but then you don't share anything about yourself, then you will be behaving in a selfish way because I'm offering this to you as a gift and you're simply taking it and not giving anything back. And is that the person you really want to be? I want you all to share as much as you can. I want you to do it for each other so that you can model that kind of openness and generosity and trust that helps cultivate that feeling of specialness that makes this a close-knit and spiritual group, if you will. The thing that you're most afraid of is the thing that you need to share first in order to get it over with. And then anything you share after that will be so much easier to say because you will have gotten the hardest subject out of the way first. Okay, who wants to go first? People who don't want to share their information are people who have shame about something they've actually done. It's an admission of guilt. So if you open up, then I will know you are not the guilty party and have nothing to hide. Don't you want me to know that about you? Don't you want to be able to prove your innocence? I know we have all been in this room for seven hours and I would love to be able to give you all a break, but there are still a few people who have not yet shared their stories and the things that make them feel depressed or anxious who have not given a voice yet to their early trauma. So I know all of you are tired and hungry and uncomfortable sitting in these chairs for so long, but these people listen to you share your story. So it's only right that you stay here while we wait for them to share theirs. And then we will all be able to take a break. And the last one, although there are many others and I could go on and on, God told me that you are holding back and you need to unburden yourself by sharing this information. And if you don't agree, then you're saying God is wrong about this. And that's a sin to have so much pride that you can say that God has made a mistake here. Megan was pushed to reveal so much about herself and it was under the guise of her being able to get in touch with herself and to help her get to a certain emotional depth by becoming open and raw in order to improve her craft. And there may actually be times that that level of depth is indeed important and necessary. But what is even more important and necessary is that the person pushing you to do this is not doing it for their own satisfaction and their own game. And sometimes you can tell by how insistent they are on your enduring this or how insulting they are when you put up any resistance. I still remember a time that a woman came to me after having been in a therapy group led by a very dominant and pushy person who got them to share more than they had ever expected and they were put down for not sharing more and put down for not showing more emotion while they revealed their previously private information. They were accused of withholding information and wasting everyone's time and berated for not being more authentic while talking, which I think is so ironic because it's not possible to have both things simultaneously. If you're berated and shamed for not sharing more and that pushes you to share, you will then no longer be sharing in an authentic way, right? So when I asked her to tell me about what she had experienced, she tested out her opportunity to withhold information from a person in position of authority and maintain privacy. And she said, no, I don't know if I want to tell you yet. So I said, okay. And she looked at me and she said, what do you mean? Okay. And I said, I'm, I mean, okay, you don't have to talk about it. You just met me. That's fine. 
What else do you want to talk about? And she looked at me suspiciously again and asked me if this was a manipulation and said, if so, I don't appreciate it. I knew why she was afraid it was a manipulation and it gave me a lot of insight about her previous experience, but I still asked what she was afraid of if she didn't tell me what she was sure I wanted her to disclose. So she answered, because then I won't tell you what you want to hear. You'll be angry and disappointed with me. You'll say I'm being resistant and I'm being difficult. And then if I come to your support group, you'll use me as an example of the kind of client who will never get better because she's so stubborn. And you'll say you have to meet with me more often because I clearly have a blockage and you are the only one who can help me and who can unblock what I need to unblock. And that if I don't let you, you'll talk about me behind my back when I'm not here, but I can't get mad about it because if I really care about expanding my emotional range, I'll come to the group every week and I'll keep with my commitment to it. And then I'll get a call from you at my house telling me how you really thought I was ready to get better and to feel better and get relief, but I obviously am not anytime I miss the group. And that I'm doing a disservice to myself and the group by holding things in. And if I don't conquer this now with your help, I'll never get over my issues because you don't usually have an available space in your group, but you do now, so I'd be foolish to not take advantage of it. Whew. As she was talking, without coming up for air, she was becoming more and more aware, though, of the expressions I was making while she was saying these things. FYI, I could never play poker. I am an easy read. So she stopped talking after voicing all of these predictions she was making about our therapeutic relationship based on her last one. And she said, okay, but from the look on your face, hmm, is it disgust maybe? Um, I'm picking up bewilderment, maybe some anger. So I'm getting a sense that what I'm saying to you isn't normal, right? This isn't how therapy usually goes. No, I said, this isn't how therapy usually goes, but this is how therapy usually goes wrong. Manipulators in every setting who just won't let up, who won't take no for an answer, and who try to work every psychological angle on you to get you to reveal your secrets are actually revealing theirs. They're revealing what they have worked hard to keep concealing. And what they are concealing is, as I see it, that they are children. Children having a cleverly worded and psychologically manipulative tantrum. You're not giving them what they want and they don't like it. Your information is the toy they want to play with, the toy they're demanding, but their regular tantrums prove they have already been given way too many toys and shouldn't be given any more from anyone until they show they know how to treat them with respect. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.
And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page, or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel. <laughs>